Okay, that sells it. He's got to be held back a year. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Judy and Drew. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we consider the question, if you will, the resurrection, does it really matter? Now, the Apostle Paul answers that quite emphatically in the 15th chapter of of 1 Corinthians. He makes that very clear as we look particularly uh, beginning in verse 12. But, but Paul talks about it in light of everything else and how this is sort of the central matter of everything. And we'll see how that is, I think, in a minute. Uh, how it, it really is. We, we've sung this. We've sung the sermon. We have thought about it as those words have permeated our hearts and our minds, I hope, as we sang together. Uh, and, and as the choir sang, all of those those words pointing us to the glory of the resurrected Christ. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12 and reading through probably about verse 28. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are above all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. I love that verse 20. But in fact, we say all this about theoretical stuff and possible ideas and what if and what not, but, it, but Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, in other words, Paul is saying, I want to be clear here, uh, in Christ all shall be made alive, but it's those who are in Christ, those who have trusted Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that the accepted that that but it is plain that he is accepted who put all things under subjection to him. 
when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The apostle here is is very clearly talking about the centrality and the importance of the resurrection. He's pointing to the fact that the resurrection is indeed that that focal point. I think if you look at, at, at the scriptures throughout, you find that what we talked about on Friday night, if you were here for the Tenebrae service, the service of shadows and of darkness, we only focused on the cross. When that was finished with readings and singing and, and, and prayers, we left here in absolute, total silence. Quite honestly, I wasn't sure Grace Baptist Church could do that. But we did. And in one sense, that was one of the most powerful moments of the whole evening was as we left here, trying to sense a little bit of what John and and Peter and, and, and the others, as they saw Christ laid in that tomb, must have felt. They didn't have anything to say. They didn't have any words. They were, they were in absolute grief and turmoil within their spirit. And all they could do is walk away thinking that the world as they knew it had come to an end. Now we understand there are several things we need to remember about the cross. And, and we would be amiss if we just jumped right to the resurrection even on Easter Sunday morning, even on Resurrection Sunday morning, because the two go together. Now, Friday night, I didn't want us to think about the resurrection at all, because on that night, those disciples weren't thinking about that. They had been told it was going to happen. Jesus had prophesied himself, as had Isaiah and other prophets, that he would be raised from the dead, but they were not anticipating that. They were not expecting that. And so we left here in sadness. We left here in somberness, because Christ had been crucified and hung on the cross and laid in the tomb. And the stone rolled in front of the tomb, in place, sealed by the Roman soldiers, under the authority of Rome, lest any man who tried to break into that tomb would be killed, executed. What happened on the cross was so significant and so important several things we need to remember about the cross this morning one we need to remember that the cross is a trinitarian event i I love that we sang in one of our hymns this morning glory be to god the father glory be to god the son glory be to god the spirit the lord is our salvation the cross was a trinitarian event because the christian faith is distinctly trinitarian we, we are unique of all religions in that. We, we serve one God who manifests himself in three persons. That, that's hard to get your head around sometimes. That's hard for me to get my head around sometimes. And I only know it's true because God's word has revealed to us that that is true. But when you think about the cross, when you think about what took place there on that day, it was very Trinitarian. I mean, Paul, writing to the Ephesian Christians in chapter 1, made that very clear. He said, listen, understand, our redemption is purposed and planned by the Father. God the Father planned it. He purposed it. Uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, he said he, he ordered it, if you will. And then we see in, in that same chapter, verses 10 through 7, that while it was purposed by the Father, planned by the Father, it was accomplished by the Son. 
It was the son who hung on the cross. It was the son who was, as John the Baptist called him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It, it was the son who accomplished it, who, who won it, who bought it on that cross. And then Paul makes clear in verses 13 and 14 that that purposed and accomplished redemption is applied and sealed and protected by the Holy Spirit. So the cross is a Trinitarian event. The, the cross is indeed the center of all the story of Scripture. The, the creation is in Scripture. The, the prophets and the sin of God's people is in Scripture. There's all sorts of accounts in Scripture of what took place before and after the cross. But in Scripture, the cross is the central event. It's the event that changes all of history. At the cross, you, you have Christ redeeming His people. You, you have Christ beating original sin. You have Christ overcoming the curse that we all live under because of our first father, Adam, back at, near the creation. Paul even said to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter two in verse 2, he doesn't say he's decided to know nothing except the incarnation, resurrection, or ascension of Christ. But he said, I am determined, I decide to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's not about his teachings, not about his miracles. It's about his death. It's about his death. It's about Him being crucified. The cross inaugurates the new covenant. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 and, and the writer of Hebrews in, in chapter 8 of Hebrews makes it clear that this new covenant community is something that's brought about because of the cross of Christ. And, it, and in that, his law, his purpose, his plan is now written not on tablets of stone, but written on our hearts. And, and we're able to know God, not as an other that we can never approach but as one to whom we can approach before His throne of grace and prayer. We can come to Him in our prayers. We can come to Him in our repentance. We can come to Him seeking His face and seeking His grace at every point. The cross inaugurates that new covenant where now they're no longer the offering of, of bulls and rams and sheep and lambs as a sacrifice the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, has been made and has been accomplished. The cross conquers sin and death. The cross is where Jesus said, it is finished. The cross is where Jesus said, I have now defeated the forces of death and evil. I have won. Everybody else thought he was saying, it's finished, I have lost. But his proclamation was, what I came to do has now been accomplished. And that is the conquering of sin and death. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.14 that the cross cancels out the record of debt that stood against us. There was this debt being demanded and, and he stamps it paid in full. He paid the price for that debt which was death because of our sin. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24 that Jesus bore our sins, those who believe in him, Jesus bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and death. 
There's the death of death and the death of Christ. And what a glorious truth that redemption is. Paul says in these verses, in this chapter, on down a little further in 54 and 55, that, that through his, the death and resurrection of Christ, death is swallowed up in victory. So the cross conquers death, sin and death. The cross also vanquishes the devil, defeats the devil. Ephesians 2, 20 and 21 says, He disarmed the powers and authorities, putting them to open shame, and triumphs over them in the cross. When he rises from the dead, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all of his creation. The cross is substitutionary. We are reminded that in the cross... He became a curse for us. We who were living under the curse. And Paul says that to the Galatians in Galatians 3.13. That means he takes the place of all who are enslaved. The enslaved, the rebels, the idolaters, the murderers, the adulterers. He, he takes their place, their curse, to all who look to him as Lord. And put their trust and their faith in him the cross represents the great exchange in substitutionary atonement he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness clothes us in his righteousness so there's a change in life that comes because of the cross of course the cross is somewhat foolishness to the world Last Easter in a PBS television special about Easter, the narrator made this statement. He said, Christianity is the only major religion to have its central focus on the suffering and the degradation of its God. And that's right. It's the only one that says our God was, was insulted, was rejected, was humiliated, was degraded and was killed. Doesn't sound like a very powerful God. But he went to that cross for our salvation. He went to that cross for our being able to be reconciled with God. But to the world, the cross is foolishness. Paul acknowledges that in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He said, you know, Christ crucified will be a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And it was. And it is, even to this day, to those who don't have the eyes of faith. The cross brings peace and reconciliation and unity. You know, it... Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.14 where the cross and Christ's death has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between races, between male and female. He has broken down the dividing wall. He has brought us into a unity to one another. Listen, we look at our country today and we are a divided people without a doubt in desperate need of being unified. We look at mass tragedies, mass shootings, whatever you want to 
look at across our land and, and we see people who are angry and mad and, and everything else and, and, and they go about it in all different ways and I'm not being political here, that's not the issue. The issue is that in reality, the only way for true reconciliation and true unity is through the cross of Christ, but that is foolishness to them. It truly is. Scripture tells us that reconciliation, peace, shalom, unity comes only from the blood of Christ on the cross. Now, all that is true. All that is what we celebrated or really didn't celebrate Friday night. We pondered on Friday night. All of that is true. It's the, it's the fact of God's redeeming work, His sacrifice on the cross, which was absolutely necessary. John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That had to be done. That Lamb of God had to be offered But had it just been Friday night, had it just been that Jesus was laid in a grave to decay, had it been the end of a three and a half year run of miracles and teachings, but it was over. then all that would be indeed foolishness. But the scripture says, as Pastor Todd read, and the scripture says, as our responsive reading that Jeff led us in, that, that the, the Isaiah the prophet prophesied that. And Matthew and the other gospel writers recorded that. That on the third day, when those women went to the tomb, hoping to be able to... They, they weren't anticipating seeing an empty tomb, folks. They really weren't. Yes, Jesus had told them it was going to happen. Jesus said, listen, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to die. But on the third day, and we raised again. They didn't hear a word of that. And those women were going to the tomb that morning in order to just put a little more spice on the body, a little more embalming, if you will, a little more care of the of the hastiness that they'd had to go to and they were hoping to find somebody that could roll that huge stone away they certainly couldn't do it but when he got there the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty except for some grave clothes laying there that he had been wrapped in he didn't need those anymore and they were left laying there. Is that not a fanciful story if you ever heard one? I mean, who in the world would, could believe that? Well, I think there's some reasons why you ought to be able to believe that. Let me, let me just give you a few of them. One of them is, and, and this will offend half the congregation here, and that's all right. The first eyewitnesses were women. Now, I'm not saying women are more truthful than men are, although that is probably an arguable point, I would think. But I am saying in the day that this was happening, women were not considered reliable witnesses. 
And, and so if you're going to make up this fanciful story about the tomb being empty and, and, and everything, you don't have women going to the grave. You don't record that for all generations to read. You have Peter going back and finding it empty and, and a man. Or you have maybe Joseph of Arimathea, the owner of the tomb, going there and saying, well, I'm of the Sanhedrin and I came back and I'll tell you, the, the tomb is empty. No, it was the women. And they ran and told the disciples, he is risen. They saw the angel there and said, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here. For he is risen just as he said he would. Come and see where they lay the body. In the, in the Greco-Roman world in which they lived, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. And God, by His wisdom and the Holy Spirit, by His working and writing this book, said, this is, what, this is who will testify to Christ's coming. It was, it was the women. I think you can also accept the resurrection as historical fact because of the minimal facts concerning the resurrection. You've got, you've got these minimal facts that nearly all New Testament scholars agree to, even those who would be of the more liberal persuasion, who, who may not even accept Christ as the Messiah, but but who would say there's some things about this that you just have to accept. There are really five of them. Jesus died by crucifixion. Only those who are in the far out stratosphere claim that, no, he didn't even exist. He wasn't really crucified. Most scholars will recognize that Jesus did exist. He died by crucifixion. Second, that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he appeared to them. Thirdly, that the church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. Attributed to the resurrected Christ appearing to him on the road to Damascus. Fourth, that the skeptic James, he was, he was his brother, half-brother, had the same mother. God was Jesus' father, Joseph was James' father, they that his, bro- his half-brother, the skeptic, was suddenly changed and believed. And the fifth minimal fact is that the tomb was indeed empty. Some tried to attribute that to this mighty band of disciples coming back in with their fish in hand or something and Scaring off the Roman guard and rolling the stone away and stealing the body. Need I remind you that after that Friday when Christ was crucified, the disciples were in hiding because they feared the same thing was going to happen to them? The transformation of the early disciples is another reason to believe it. They, they all went from hiding, fearful, skeptical of all of this, and, and they, they believed. James, I mean, Paul tells us how back in the first part of chapter 15, you know, I, I delivered you what is of first importance. I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. Then he appeared to James. 
then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. There's some embarrassing details that point to its authenticity. You know, if you're writing a story about formulating some kind of religious experience that really didn't happen, you you don't put in embarrassing things. Women is the first witnesses we've already mentioned that a member of the Sanhedrin, the one who had condemned him to death and took him to the Romans, also came and got his body and gave him a a proper burial. The disciples were fearful and hiding and scared. And, And most of all, you got old Peter... You got old Peter, old bold, brash, I'll go with you to the death if I have to, Peter, who three times said, I don't know him. Mm -mm, I don't know him. Denied him three times before the cock crowed. Listen, if you're writing a story, you make it up a story to try to start a new religion or something, you, you really don't do it that way. Then there's the willingness to die for what was known. Those disciples were willing, and many of them did die, proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I was amazed by an article, I think back in the early 2002, I think it was, that Charles Colson, Chuck Colson of Watergate fame, wrote, and he said, you know what convinces me, what is the one, when he became a Christian, what convinced me more than anything else of the resurrection of Christ being a historical fact? He said, Watergate. Watergate convinced me that the resurrection of Jesus was historical fact. He said, here's why. At Watergate, you had the most powerful man in the world, the President of the United States, and you had his advisors, who were the most powerful underlings in the, in the whole world, and all, of, all together they made up 12 men. And he said, of those 12 men, we set out to do a cover-up, a lie, to, to give a false narrative to the world about what really happened. And he said, we came together, we planned that narrative, we, we talked about it, we said, here's how we're going to do it. It was all laid out to perfection, and within two weeks, John Dean was running for his life saying, I want to tell you what really happened. And within another week, others were coming forth. And when they were asked, why did you break that silence? Why did you break the narrative? They said, to save my own skin. And yet those first Christians were willing to die for what some want to say was a fabrication. People don't die for fabrications. They will do anything they can. It's just nature. It's just that self-preservation nature to try and save ourselves. We could go into the documentary evidence. We could go into the circumstantial evidence. You know, the whole, the whole early church gives us circumstantial evidence because they continue to proclaim the resurrection and they continue to practice things like baptism and the Lord's Supper and Sunday worship rather than Saturday worship because of the, uh, the picture of him being raised on the Lord's Day. On Sunday, the baptism showing death, burial, 
and resurrection. The Lord's Supper pointing to the sacrifice. There's also a missing motive in these disciples. J. Warner Wallace in his book on cold case Christianity, he's a former L.A. cold case detective, the LAPD. J. Warner Wallace wrote these words. He said, you know, in his books and in his lectures, he talks about when a conspiracy is formed, three motivating factors are behind such a move. Power, greed, and or lust. Those are the motivators. The disciples got no power by proclaiming the resurrection. The early church got no official governmental endorsement by proclaiming the resurrection. As a matter of fact, if anything, they were persecuted for it by religious leaders and by the government. They didn't get any money out of it. There was no greed factor there because most of them, when they professed Christ, just like in many parts of the world today, in the Middle East and other places, in the far, uh, far west, they, uh, far east rather, when, when you have these things taking place, when someone comes to Christ and proclaims the resurrection, they lose their income. They lose their source of property. And there was no lust for power or greed or anything else. They just proclaimed the truth. The enemies even testified to it inadvertently. They admitted the tomb was empty. Some of them wanted to say the disciples stole it. We know those disciples, those tricky, sneaky, brave disciples. They went in and stole the body, scared off the Roman guard. Others said, no, no, hey, we got the body. We took it. We knew they would come back and try to steal it. So we went in and removed it and moved it somewhere else. Ha, 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 we foiled that, but they never produced a body. Some would say it was hallucinations, but 500 people don't tend to hallucinate the same thing at the same time, at the same place. Now, even the enemies of the resurrection testify to its factuality. There are multiple post-resurrection eyewitnesses. Paul talks about that in that first part of chapter 15. I'm delivering this to you as first importance, most important. What I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to Scripture, according to prophecy, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, Paul always brings it back to the Scriptures, to the Word of God, to what God has said would happen for the redemption of His people, for redeeming a people. Accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes through that litany. I won't read it again, but all that he appeared to and how he appeared to them and at different places and times, and then 500 all together. There are many other evidence that could be given the resurrection of Christ. There are many ways to look at it. There are many books that have been written about it. If you want to Study that more, ask me. I'll give you some titles that will take that further. What I want to say this morning to you is that Christ died. 
Christ died in order that your sins might be forgiven. But more than that, Christ died that you might be able to be given and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin, to quote scripture, became sin so that we who have no righteousness of our own might become the very righteousness of God. Transformed. Changed. Into the image of Christ. Gloriously by His grace. And by His power. Paul said, this is my desire. I want to know Him. I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. I want to be conformed even to His death, if that's what it takes to know Him. That was His passion in life. We come this Easter Sunday, as we do every Sunday, to proclaim that that forgiveness, that righteousness, that changed life is available to all who believe who put their trust in Jesus Christ, who put their faith in Him as Lord and say, Lord, I trust You. I I can't do it myself. I'm, I'm incapable of making myself right with You. But I know, Lord, that You can do that in my life. I call out for Your mercy and Your grace and Your power my life see as fanciful as it might seem it is not fancy or fantasy it is truth it is fact it's a fact that the entire history of the human race finds as its center point And to neglect that and to deny that is to know only condemnation, to know only rejection by Almighty God. I mean, we don't talk about it a lot in in our day, but it is a matter of heaven or hell. Both are real. Both are true. And what you do with Christ in here now determines that destination. Paul said, if we only have hope in Christ in this world alone, we are to be pitied. Yes, we have hope in Christ in this world, but we have hope in Christ for the world yet to come. Where are you in relationship to Christ? That is the most important question you can ask yourself this Easter. Let's pray together.
Father, we have sung about you being risen. We have sung about you being our salvation. We've, we've praised your name. We've sung about the cross. We've heard the choir sing about what a morning. Oh, what a morning. We've heard the trumpets blare over the glory of Easter with the keyboard. Lord, we've heard the truth from your word about your death, burial, and resurrection. We rejoice this day that you're not in a grave somewhere in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem. You are alive forevermore, forevermore to reign over your creation. Father, that brings great joy, great peace, great reconciliation with one another when we know that. Father, teach us. Teach us all anew on this Easter Sunday. Father, I pray for men and women who are here that don't know you. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you will touch their hearts and their eyes and let them see their need for a Savior and believe that Christ the Lord is the only Savior the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through Him. Father, show us, teach us, remind us, be glorified in us. For that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand together and sing together, as God works in your life, you be obedient.